I had an interesting week. I, I got a phone call at the church office this week uh, from a lady who said that her and her daughter the night before had discovered Daisy's website. Most of you know who my daughter Daisy is, and she just got finished with uh, two years of battling cancer. And uh, her website has had, you know, a few million hits. It's, it's been places. And so we've had a lot of people contact us and say, we saw the website, and we're just moved by Daisy's story. And, you know, some of the sermons I've given about it are up there and little videos of, of Daisy's battle with cancer. And so anyway, this lady called, and she said, uh, my daughter and I found the, the website last night. Uh, we were tremendously moved by it, and we, we would love to meet you guys. And uh, her name was, was Andrea. Andrea Swift. Her daughter is Taylor Swift. So, uh, so, <laughs> so I'm on the phone with Taylor Swift's mom. And she's saying, Taylor would just love to meet you guys. I would love to meet you guys. We want you to know that we're praying for Daisy. And uh, we, we would do anything to get together with you. And I said, oh, okay, what do you want to do, Mrs. Swift? <laughs> we're pretty open till the rapture, so <laughs> you name it. And she said, well, tomorrow night, Taylor has a concert down in San Diego. And if at all possible, she would love for your family to come down and be her guest. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm open. So uh, we hopped in the car and went down to San Diego and, and went backstage and spent time with Taylor. And she is such a beautiful young lady. Uh, her heart, I mean, just beautiful. So... I could be her dad, shut up. <laughs> My 11-year-old son has a crush on her. <laughs> Creepy. She's got a beautiful heart, her and her family and her team, and just made us feel so welcomed and, you know, talked to us about what Daisy had gone through and really encouraged Daisy and told her she'd been strong. And it was just, she just had a, a just a beautiful way of expressing love uh, to my family. And then we got to see, be her special guests at the concert and sit in the sound booth and, and watch the concert from there. And uh, at one time, Taylor came down off the stage and into the crowd and she went right up to my son, who's going to be 11 in a couple weeks, and gave him a giant hug and he's just like <laughs> he's still like that he's still like he's not saying it to me but I see him telling other people like she hugged me <laughs> and gave Daisy a big kiss and she had big red lipstick on her on her uh, face and just just a lot of love it was really a neat experience but but here's my my favorite part about Taylor Swift and getting to meet her so on and so forth is uh, when we first told Daisy about it Daisy, my, my seven-year-old daughter, had no idea who Taylor Swift was. She just had no idea. My son knew, but Daisy had no idea. And so when we said Taylor Swift, Daisy in her little mind thought that we were talking about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. And so she's like, I can't believe I get to meet Hudson Taylor. She was so excited to meet Hudson Taylor, and I'm just the most proud dad in the whole world that my seven-year-old girl didn't know who Taylor Swift was, but she knew about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. And actually, all the credit goes to my wife because she teaches my kids about missionaries and reads uh, missionary biographies with them continually. And Daisy has a huge heart for the nation. She wants to go to China. Uh, she always says, Daddy, I can't wait till you and I go to China together and tell everyone there about Jesus. And so all the way down, uh, she was still getting confused. You know, she was still saying, it's going to be so great to meet Hudson Taylor. And we'd remind her, she'd say, I know, I hope I don't call her Hudson. It was 
It was really cute and really cool. Let's open up in our Bibles now to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Taylor says hi to all of you, by the way. Ephesians chapter 1, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse series, Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us, and the message uh, is entitled, Despair and Deliverance. Despair and Deliverance. We're going to be looking at verse 7 today. We'll read verses 3 through 7, just to get a feel. So let's start reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So... We praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. In verse 7, he's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thrill us with this truth this morning. Thrill us with this truth. Lord, heal us with this truth. Ignite our souls with this truth. Lord, transform our lives with this truth. These things that we just read, these are the greatest truths the world has ever known. We pray that they wouldn't be lost on us. We pray right now, Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts and our minds to understand, to comprehend, to get a glimpse of your great love for us. And the work of your son on the cross for us. Holy Spirit, please speak to us. You know the issues of our lives. You know where we're despairing because of sin and our own sinfulness, our own wickedness, our own choice. You know where we feel trapped in our sin. You know where we're longing for deliverance. And so come and work your work, O great Redeemer. Save us from the weight and the burden and the debt of our sins. And bring us into the love, joy, and peace of knowing you. We ask that you please anoint me to humbly and truthfully preach your good news. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in a previous sermon, I I spoke a little bit about John D. Rockefeller. You guys might remember that. It was in the sermon entitled Discontentment and Blessing, um, where we basically talked about the fact that, as it says in Proverbs, the eyes of man are never satisfied. That we're just never satisfied in our sinfulness until we're satisfied with Christ. We talked about that when we looked at verse 3. And we talked about John D. Rockefeller as, as kind of representing the sentiment of humanity because he was the richest man in the world and maybe the richest man that has ever been if you adjust for, adjust for inflation. He's the first billionaire. So when they ask the richest man that has ever lived, how much is enough? You'll remember his answer. His answer was, well, just a little bit more. Because the eyes of man are never satisfied. There's never enough 
apart from being satisfied in Jesus. So, so we use that just to illustrate that fact and begin to think about that. And it's not that John D. Rockefeller was a, a bad guy. As I've studied his life a little bit, it seems like he was a tremendous guy. And, and he was a philanthropist. He's kind of one of the, the founders of, of the idea of philanthropy. And, and he's got a great legacy because he, he gave so much. But when you think about being John D. Rockefeller, richest man that ever lived, and, and how you might give, there's two ways that you could think about giving. You could give from your riches, or you could give according to your riches. Now, these are two different things. From your riches is the idea of saying, I have plenty, so I can spare some. According to your riches is saying, I have plenty, so I can give plenty. So all of us, when we think about giving, we could give from what we have, or we could give according to what we have. We could give a little bit from the surplus, or, or we could give a whole lot because we have a whole lot. John D. Rockefeller, one of the most famous photos of him is him in a top hat and a coat, and, and he's bending down, and, and he's putting a dime in the hand of a homeless child. And this just wasn't a one-time photo opportunity. This is something that he did all the time. He would go away giving dimes to homeless children and to people who were destitute and experiencing difficulty. During the Great Oppression, he changed to a nickel and he'd give them a nickel instead of a dime. But he had this habit of, to those children who were in need, placing a dime in their hand. And there's a famous photo of that. And what that was, was Mr. Rockefeller giving from his riches. Just a dime. He had plenty. What, what's a dime? He can give a dime to every homeless kid in America. No, no problem. He was giving from his riches rather than according to his riches. Because he could have, if he wanted to give according to his riches to those homeless children, he could have given them homes. He could have given them land. He could have given them factories, estates, and whole industries. And there's a, there's a parallel story actually in Scripture. I'll just read it to you. In Luke chapter 21, you're familiar with it, the widow's offering, or, or the widow's might, as it's popularly called. It says in uh, Luke 21, verse 1, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Now, here's why Jesus pointed out to his disciples that day what the woman did in the temple. The reason that he pointed it out, it wasn't that he had something against rich people per se. But the reason that he pointed out the way that she gave is because the way that she gave was akin to the way that God gives us grace. That's why he pointed that out. Last week, we, we looked at verse 6, which literally reads, We praise God for the glorious grace that he has graced us with. Poured out on us, the verbal form of the noun Greek in the Greek language. We praise God for the glorious grace he has graced us with. And now we're told this week in verse 7, that he is so rich in kindness and grace, that he has purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. The New American Standard, which I'm more familiar with, is helpful here. It says in the same verse, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have forgiveness, 
and redemption in Christ according to the riches of God's grace. God has given us grace according to his riches. He has redeemed and forgiven us according to his riches. He is so rich in kindness and grace and has redeemed us and forgiven us according to the vast riches of his grace, not merely from his grace. To take up the picture again of the homeless child receiving a dime from John D. Rockefeller. Can you think of a more desperate situation than to be a homeless child? I mean, what, what, what could be more desperate? Do you know there's 1.5 million homeless children in America? That, that means one out of every five children in America is homeless. Can, can you think of a more desperate plight? No place to belong. No one to belong to. Vulnerable, exposed, weak, helpless, desperate. And, and as you think upon that, I just want to draw your attention to this fact that that is a great analogy for the plight of sinners. Because our intended belonging to God has been broken by our sin. We are left vulnerable to the destructive force of sin. We are exposed to the schemes of Satan who tempts us further to sin. We are weak against the wiles of sin and Satan. We are helpless to ultimately overcome the power of sin and Satan. We as sinners are indeed desperate. And what would a mere dime do for a child in that state? A homeless child, no place to belong, vulnerable, weak, exposed, helpless, desperate. Well, what could a mere dime do for him or her? It might buy a meal. It may perhaps provide a moment or two of relief. But it would never, a dime could never deliver that child from his or her desperate situation. Their plight was too great. Their situation was too dire. And God is so rich in kindness and grace that he has not given us a dime of his grace. He has given grace to us according to the riches of all of his grace. In redeeming us with the precious blood of Christ, he has not provided a mere moment of relief from our desperate plight as sinners, but he has actually delivered us completely, fully, and eternally from the power and penalty of sin. So that we now are fully free and fully forgiven in Christ. So that we hear verse 6 to mean something when it says, We praise God for the glorious grace he has graced us with. Can somebody in this house praise God this morning? God has not given us a dime of his grace. He has graced us with grace according to his riches. He has given us industry of grace and land of grace and homes of grace. He's given us a whole economy of grace. God has purchased our freedom. Purchased our freedom, it says in the New Living Translation, the, the theological phrase is redemption. 
As it says in the New American Standard Bible, he has redeemed us. We are redeemed people. Redemption is the idea. And by the use of the word redemption, what that means is that sinners are not free people. If there's a need for redemption, then it means that sinners are not free people. As sinners, we were desperately looking for freedom. And in a strange twist of fate, we who were once slaves to sin, searched for freedom in more sin. We were just slaves to sin, and sin left us dissatisfied and in bondage. And in our search for freedom, we, we sinned all the more. Because there was in us who were alienated from God in our sins, this strange sense of bondage and non-belonging, deprivation and dissatisfaction. So in looking to belong, to be free, to have fullness and satisfaction, we lusted more because we weren't satisfied. We cheated and we stole because we felt deprived. We cultivated and nurtured bitterness because we were wounded from not belonging. We indulged in certain things and behaviors and substances because we felt bound up and constrained and stressed out. And in all of our searching, in our sexual liberty, in our substance abuse, in our greedy getting, in our belittling of others, and in our promoting of selves, we found ourselves to be more enslaved than when we first began. In a desperate search for freedom, we dove into sin and found ourselves more constrained by it than when we began. Because scripture reveals sin to be a power that enslaves. John 8, 34, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6.6, 6, Romans 7.14, Romans 7.23 said that we were slaves to sin. And we have this telling sentence in Genesis 4.7 that says, if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. God talking to Cain after he had slain his brother. If you refuse to do what is right, if you continue in sin, watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door. And it's eager to control you. Sin in scripture is personified as a power that wants to exercise control over men and women. And Jesus said explicitly, don't, don't fool yourself. Everyone who sins is a slave to it. And sin is, is progressive in nature. We find, don't we, that the more we indulge in sin, the more we indulge in sin. And not only is sin in itself progressive in nature, but the enslavement of sin is progressive in nature. So the more that we sin, the more we find ourselves in bondage, in shackles, enslaved. We find ourselves controlled by sin. We begin devising ways to sin, looking for ways to protect our sin and justify our sin and hide our sin and continue in sin. Hoping that somehow we can ultimately control our sin when the reality is we are being controlled by sin. And as progressive in nature, we know this. 
That's why God told Cain, if you refuse to do what is right, if you don't get right, if you don't repent, watch out because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. Personified is a power that seeks to control us, master us, enslave us. And the ultimate power behind sin, the real personification, is Satan. The enemy of our souls. When Peter wrote in his first epistle, stay alert, Christians, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's our enemy. He's ruthless. He wants to consume our lives. He wants to devour our lives with sin. So the warning to the Christian is watch out. Jesus, in the same sort of warning, John 10.10, 10, exposed Satan, speaking of him as a thief, and said the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life, Christ said. And in Luke 22.31, Jesus goes to the disciples, and particularly Peter, and says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan's desire for you is that he wants to thrash you with sin. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to thrash your life with a controlling, destroying, gnashing power that is sin. And so humanity finds itself, we find ourselves trapped, enslaved, needing to be rescued. Needing to be redeemed. And don't think that mere human strength is enough. Leon Morris says, we might, if we try hard enough, break away from this or that sin that we have been committing. But we can never break the grip of all sin. We can never break the grip of all sin. We're helpless in the face of the power of sin and Satan. And this is the plight of all of humanity without Jesus. And though sin is fun for a season, and I'll testify, Satan's ultimate goal is to thrash your life with it. And so we have a rescuer. We have a redeemer. The world has been given good news. Right here in this verse, he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, God did. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. Redemption was meaningful to that Greek culture. It was a Greek where, it was a culture, excuse me, where slavery was prevalent. And the idea of redemption came from the, the marketplace of slavery. Where men and women and children who were captives to an owner, slaves to a master, Their only hope of ever being free was if someone would come along and redeem them. If someone were willing to come and pay a price to purchase them out of slavery. But, but who? Who would do such a thing? And slaves would their whole lives search for pennies and Hope for something of value to appear for them that they could save up and, and maybe someday purchase their own freedom. But it was utterly hopeless. They would never as slaves 
be able to come up with any amount to purchase their own freedom. And so they stood there with a dream of redemption that maybe someday, some way, a rescuer will come who will meet me in my captivity and pay a price to bring me into freedom. And that's what Jesus has done for humanity. Jesus came to buy us out of the slavery to sin and Satan and to make us sons and daughters of God. He said this expressly in Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A prize to give his life as a ransom for many. Titus 2.14 says the same thing. Speaking of Jesus, he gave his life to free us, redeem us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. The empty life. That life of bondage where you went more into bondage the more you sought your own freedom. To save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The Bible says that we have to be redeemed from the power and the penalty of sin. And if a ransom has to be paid, it simply means that we cannot get out of it ourselves. We are desperate slaves without hope who needed to be rescued. And the good news of Jesus is that God purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. We were like Israel, who was enslaved to Egypt, who becomes for us a picture of tyranny and desperate slavery, at whose hands their children were killed and their backs were whipped and their lives and vitality were taken away. They were slaves to Egypt. And they cried out to God. God said to them in Exodus 6, 6, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm. And so in the same way, the book of Romans says, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and repented of our sins, Romans 6, 14, sin is no longer your master. Hear it. Christian, sin is no longer your master. You may feel enslaved today, but if your faith and your hope is in Christ, if you've been united to him by faith, sin is no longer your master. You may be feeling bound in addiction today, but if you are in Christ, sin is no longer your master. You may be feeling trapped in bitterness today, but if you are in Christ, sin is no longer your master. You may be feeling dissatisfied and consumed with greed and self-promotion, but if you are in Christ, sin is no longer your master. You may be overwhelmed with lust and thoughts of adultery, 
But if you are in Christ, sin is no longer your master. And this theological idea of redemption emphasizes the greatness of the price that was paid for our freedom to be gained. As Peter wrote in his first epistle, we we weren't redeemed with money. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why the blood? Because the blood is simply representative of life. You take the blood from the veins, there is no more life. Jesus gave his life to redeem us from the power of sin. And if so great a price has been paid, then just as great of a freedom has been gained. God has given to us from the riches of his grace. What more could he give than his own son? And if he's given us a son, he will not withhold from us any good thing. And so if such a great price as the blood of Christ has been paid, then truly we have just as great of a freedom. So that Jesus would testify and say in John 8, 36, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. He has redeemed us according to the riches of his grace. And so I'll say what must be said in light of the good news to those of us who are struggling with the power of sin. What must be said in light of the blood of Christ and the truth of redemption is that there is no sin that cannot be overcome in our lives by the power of his life. Believe it. There is no sin that cannot be overcome in our lives by the power of his life. His blood was a ransom. By his blood, we've been redeemed. There is no sin that cannot be overcome by the power of his life. And his life is not only his blood, his life is his spirit, the spirit of God in us. There's no sin in our lives that can't be overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the Holy Spirit who is in us. No addiction. I know what our culture says about addiction. I know that we call it a disease. I know that we have all sorts of ways to cope with it. I'm not necessarily speaking against those things, but I am speaking for this thing the blood of Jesus, and the Spirit of God. And if we have any hope of redemption, of freedom, of being free from the tyranny and power and enslaving, thrashing work of sin and Satan, where your greatest hope is the blood of Christ and the Spirit of the living God. Because Scripture declares emphatically for the the Christian, the power of sin in our lives has been broken. It doesn't mean that there's not still a struggle. There is a struggle. Until we're in glory with Jesus, there's going to be a struggle. Scripture's clear about that. Galatians chapter 5. The flesh and the spirit wage war. Romans chapter 7. This immense battle between knowing what I ought to do, but not doing the thing I want to do. Doing the very thing I don't want to do because of the sin that is in me. I find myself to be a slave to sin. The scripture is emphatic that the power of sin has been broken in the life of the believer. 
Romans 6 says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's true and truth. We were set free from the power of sin. So that we return to verse 6. It says, so we praise God for the glorious grace he's graced us with in his son. In whom we have redemption by his blood. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We're, we're no longer slaves. We're now free sons and daughters. And freedom feels so good. When it says, in him we have redemption, we have that phrase in the New American Standard is one word in the Greek, echomment. We have, it's in the present tense in the Greek. It means that we have right now, in this moment, Christian, we have redemption. We have it. We look forward to the fullness of it. But we also have it. We have redemption right now. It is a present reality for us. So that the Christian wakes up in the morning and says, I can live in a new and different way. I don't have to live in despair. I don't have to be trapped by my failures. I don't have to be a prisoner to my lusts. I don't have to be a prisoner to my pride. I don't have to be a prisoner to my greed. I don't have to be ruled by this addiction. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, I've been risen to new life. The power of sin is broken in my life. I have a new way to live. I don't have to despair. I've been delivered. Romans 6 then tells us this. Verse 12, do not let sin control the way you live. Make a choice today, Christian. Redemption is a present reality. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in desperation, in tears with repentance on your face of must needs. Do not let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. Right? There's the daily battle right there. It is a daily battle. battle. Scripture doesn't deny that. Until we go to be in glory with Christ, there will be a battle. But the victory is won at the cross. It's historic. It's past tense with a present action. Do not let sin control the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Don't serve your sin. It's not your master anymore. Instead, instead, give yourselves completely to God. Maybe that's what, what we're doing today. Give yourselves completely to God. You may be given a little bit to God. and Maybe you've given this or that to God. But scripture says, give yourself completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Because sin is no longer your master. Give your whole body to do what is right for the glory of God. 
Be the slave who says, I've been redeemed at a great price. Uh, uh, an unspeakable ransom has been paid to make me free. So I'm going to use my whole body to do what is right, to glorify God. Because there's been a change now. There's been a change of mastery. Sin is no longer our master, but Christ is. Christ is Lord, is the declaration of the church. Lord is just a nice way of saying master. The declaration of the church throughout the ages is Christ is Lord. And Romans 10, 9 would say, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. So sin is no longer our master, but Jesus is our master. And so we have to hear what 1 Corinthians says when it says, you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God. God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved to the world. L listen to the logic of Scripture. You've been set free with the precious blood of Christ. God, God didn't give to you from His grace. God gave to you according to His grace. A whole industry, a, a whole economy of grace. So do the right thing, you who have been set free. Don't act as though you're enslaved to sin anymore. But give your lives to honor God. Give your lives to honor God. For you are twice his. There's this old story that preachers often use of a little kid who lived on a lake and he, from wood, whittled a little boat that he was so proud of. And he worked so hard on it. Made it with his own hands and he loved the little boat. And he would sail the boat with his dad down at the shore of the lake there. And one day the, the wind got the better of the situation and blew the boat into the middle of the lake and there was nothing the, the child could do. And some weeks later, he was in the marketplace with his parents and he saw there on the shelf of a vendor his little boat. And he went to grab the boat and he's yelling, that's my boat. And as he went to grab the boat, the vendor grabbed his hand and said, no, that's my boat. bought it with a great price from a fisherman who brought it in from the lake. And the young man's father reached into his pocket and he took out everything that he had and he threw it down. And he bought the boat and gave it to his son. And his son held the boat and said, you are twice mine for I have made you and now I have bought you. And your heavenly father reached into his pocket and laid down the greatest price of the blood of his son. He has made you and he has bought you. We are twice his. Glorify God with your life. But it's not only the power of sin that had to be broken for us. It was also the penalty of sin which in Scripture is just as real as the, power, as the power of sin. You see, sin creates something. 
Scripture speaks of sin as a burden to bear, a stain that we wear, a debt that we incur. Because sin, the penalty of it is so real. There's something that's truly created. That's why when we're sinned against, it's so hard for us to sometimes get over it, huh? When parents abuse us and spouses cheat on us and friends betray us and close ones reject us, it can be so hard to get over because it's not as though it's a trite thing. There's something real that's created in sin. A burden that we bear, a stain that we wear, a debt that is incurred. So that the verse goes on to say, we have in him the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. To trespass is to cross the line. God has set boundaries for humanity. We've crossed the line. Willingly and willfully cross the line. To sin is a stumbling, a falling. To sin is, is to experience an inability to make progress in the right direction. So you see, what, what humanity has done in sin is cross the line of God's boundaries for us. And now we're suffering an inability to head in the right direction. And so it creates for us, once again, despair, a weight we must bear, a stain that we wear, a debt we've incurred. And we need to be forgiven. We are burdened and stained and in debt. We have sinned against the holy God. And we, humanity, needs to be forgiven. We cannot escape the weight of our actions. There's no cosmic scale. Listen to me, sinner. When you stand before God, there is no cosmic scale. Whereupon he will have all the wrong that you've done and you will have opportunity to heap upon it all the right that you've done in hopes that it will outweigh the wrong. No amount of good undoes your wickedness before God. It's not the way that it works. Because sin creates something real. A burden that you bear, a stain that you wear, a debt that you've incurred. And apart from Christ, we are trapped in a prison of guilt and shame. R. Kent Hughes in his commentary in Ephesians tells a story about Albert Speer, who was Hitler's right-hand man who some years ago had written a book about some of his experiences and he was being interviewed on Good Morning America. He writes and says this, Speer was a Hitler confidant whose technological genius kept the Nazi factories running throughout World War II. He was the only one of the 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg to admit his guilt. He admitted his guilt. Listen to this story. And he had served 20 years in a Spandau prison. The interviewer on Good Morning America referred to a passage in one of Speer's earlier books and said, quote, you have said... The guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And Albert Speer responded by saying, I've served a sentence of 20 years. And I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't get rid of it. And this new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. The interviewer then pressed the point and said, quote, you, you really don't think you're able to clear it totally? Spear shook his head and said, I don't think it will ever be possible. 
And that was the last thing he ever said publicly. He died shortly after. This is indicative of the fact that when we realize our guilt, there is no hope of being freed from the prison of it. And if for you, your guilt and your shame seem to have dissipated in the wash of time, I'm telling you that they are only lying dormant, waiting for the day that you stand before a great and holy God in judgment wherein they will be awakened and you will feel as you have never felt before the burden that you bear, the stain you wear, and the debt you have incurred. They haven't dissipated in the wash of time. Rather, what you must do is repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ that you might be redeemed and forgiven. And the way that he wants to forgive you today is you repent of your sins and put your faith in him is he wants to forgive you according to his riches. Because of what Christ did on the cross, God does not forgive like we forgive. We forgive begrudgingly. We forgive partially. But the forgiveness of God is different. Psalm 103 says, He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Metaphorical language for he, They're gone. Removed. Done. And, and he doesn't, he's not like us when he forgives. He, he doesn't keep in the back of his mind a record of wrong waiting for the right opportunity to bring it up again, to throw it in our face. Jeremiah 31, 34. Thus says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Maybe you know this and you're already a Christian. You've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're despairing, as I am, over your continued sinfulness, over the battle that we encounter, having been redeemed, but not yet in glory. Hear what's written in Micah seven nineteen, where it says, Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Hear what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, maybe that's what we're doing today. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all wickedness. So, Maybe what we're doing is repenting and returning. Isaiah 44, 22, God says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Maybe, Christian, you're feeling weighed down. And when I say burden and stain and debt, you, you feel it more than you ought. Return to the Lord today. He's swept it away. He's paid the price to set you free. And what you need to do today is repent them, repent. The price that was paid, the blood of Jesus, is so awesome that in eternity future, the church and the angels will sing about it. 
We might struggle with it now, but in the days to come, we will sing about it with angels. Revelation chapter 5. And they sing a new song with these words. They sing this to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you are slaughtered. And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, the angels and the church. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the Lamb. It's all we could do now, God. It's all we could do is worship you and give you glory for the glorious grace that you've graced us with. God, as I prayed in the beginning, I pray at the end. Thrill us with this truth. If we need to be horrified by our sinfulness that we might repent, then horrify us, God. But in your, in your grace, bring us to your grace and grace us with grace that we might be thrilled with your glorious grace that you've poured out on us. Teach our hearts to sing with the angels of the fact that your blood has ransomed us and made us your own. Cause us to rejoice in the fact that we are twice yours. And Holy Spirit of God, cause us to live lives that bring glory to you. Lord, I thank you that this day you've renewed in me a desire, an intense desire to live a life that glorifies you more than I have been. I'm horrified by my sin. I'm in awe of your grace. I rejoice that I've been redeemed. And I want to live for your glory. Do that in your church, God. Do that in your church.